You know, quite a few people have quite a few different views on what marriage should be like. God has a specific view and he's laid it out for us in his word. The only view that really matters when it comes to marriage. We're continuing our series, God's Design for Marriage and Family, here today on Graceful Truth. Make it a point to join us and be encouraged, won't you? As the marriage goes, so goes the church, so goes the nation. Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Today we continue our series, God's Design for Marriage and Family. And we're looking at marriage, why it is so important. In fact, it's important enough that God begins it before any culture is really established, therefore transcending culture. So join us in Genesis as we take a look at marriage. Here today on Graceful Truth is Pastor Steve Converse. If there's one thing we need today in our society, it's a biblical view of marriage. We have all kinds of views out there when it comes to the subject of marriage. Um, there's people even that want to marry their pet. Okay, uh, it's just kind of crazy. Uh, that's not what God, now you may love your pet, that's fine, but that's not what God envisioned when he created and uh, started the Institute of Marriage. Now, a lot of times when it comes to a series like this, family, marriage, some of you may be single and you're sitting there going, okay, well, I'm just going to check out for the next 45 minutes. Please don't, because eventually you may be married and you can apply these truths, and even if God has gifted you with the gift of singleness, and you'll never be married maybe, you can still run into people that are married. And what a joyous thing it is to be able to bring light to what God says about marriage upon their own relationships. And so it's important to um, kind of focus in and really understand that this subject matter, marriage and the family, is uh, basic to any Christian's life. It's really basic to the um, inworkings of a church because I really believe our church will only be as strong as the families and the marriages that make that church up. And so it's important that we understand that God has a goal for us in marriage. Uh, we've been looking at um, back in, in Genesis chapter 2. You can turn back there. We'll be reading that in just a second. But there's a lot of people that have different ideas about marriage. Um, a couple quotes I ran across was one person said this, marriage can be compared to a cage. Birds outside are in despair trying to enter, and the birds inside are in despair trying to escape. <laughs> now, that's a sad view of marriage. God created marriage. Um, someone else wrote, marriage is when a man and a woman become one. I think we all agree with that. The trouble is, when they try to decide which one. <laughs> and if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I think more appropriately than any of those quotes, I liked what Martin Luther said about marriage. He said, there is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. And that is so true. That is so true. And you know what, if we're honest, if we're married here today, 
I don't think there's anybody here that says, yeah, I, I'm just hoping for a bad marriage. I'm planning for a bad marriage. I want my marriage to stink. No, you're hoping for a good marriage. You want it to be honoring to the Lord, honoring to your spouse. And even when we look around, if you're single here today and you see other people who are married, you want their marriages to be good. I don't think anyone would say, well, I hope their marriage fails. And it's really um, crucial and important that we understand what constitutes, what makes up a good marriage according to the Bible. Not according to the world, according to the Bible. And so there's no place better to begin than the first marriage, the one that God instituted all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And so if you turn your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we can read this. This is what Moses recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, concerning the circumstances and the institute of the first marriage. And he lays down some very biblical convictions for us. And these are convictions that not only for Adam and Eve, but for our marriage and for everybody else's marriage as well. So let's read. You can follow along as I read our text for us. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord said, It's not good for man, for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This passage, as we started last week, records for us the fundamental, the basic convictions, biblical convictions about marriage. And since some of you are new here, I'm just going to go over what we went over last week real quick. The first biblical conviction about marriage was that it has a divine purpose. Marriage isn't just something that God came up out of thin air. It has a purpose, like God has a purpose in everything he created. Uh, Your marriage has a divine purpose, And that purpose is fleshed out for us here in Genesis chapter 2. And we looked at this last week. Well, what are these purposes? The first one we looked at, the first primary purpose for marriage last week we looked at was relationship. Relationship. And we said there in verse 18, it says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, man, I know that you might struggle with that verse. Well, I like being alone. Well, it just says it's not good for you to be alone. I mean, I enjoy my privacy. I like quiet. I like being on my own, doing my own thing. But God says that's not good. And so you have to bow to the authority of God. He knows us. He created us. And so he knows what's good for us and what's not. And see, this is really a reflection of the relationship. There's that word again, relationship, that existed and exists within the Trinity, 
itself. When you stop and think about it, even in this statement, one person of the Godhood is talking to another person of the Godhood. Let us make this in our image. Um, So forever in eternity, there has been a relationship between the person of our God within the persons of the Trinity. And marriage really is to reflect the importance of that relationship. You can't get married and just be two people living under the same roof, living in your own world. That's not a successful marriage. That's not a a marriage that honors God. There's no relationship there. Now, I know, ladies, you probably want more of a relationship than your husbands do in the marriage. That's fine. There's room for compromise there. We need to give people space and everything. But at the same time, you don't get married and then retreat to your opposing sides, and that's how you live out your marriage. That's going to be a miserable marriage because there's not going to be any relationship there. So the first thing was relationship. Secondly, we said that marriage was designed divinely for help. He says there, I will make him what? It says a helper, a helper. Now, I'm not going to go into this any more than what we did last week, other than to say next week we're going to talk about, ladies, how you help your husbands, how you can be an assistance to your your husbands divinely. That's the purpose of marriage. I will make him a helper. Thirdly, we said that marriage was made for completion because down in verses 18 and 22 to 22, it says, I will make a helper. Then it says what? Suitable for him. He's going to make a helpmate suitable for the man. Woman was created to complement the man. Did you hear me? Not compete with the man to complement the man. That's important. Woman was created to complement the man. Now, what do you mean by that? Oh, don't you look nice today? No, I'm not talking about that kind of compliments. It means to correspond, to fit together, to help make up his weaknesses. And yes, men, we do have weaknesses. Would you acknowledge that with me? Yes, we do. And also, to make up hers on the other side. Marriage was designed for completion. So marriage has a divine purpose. The, the primary purposes for marriage are encompassed in those three concepts. If you can just wrap your mind around that relationship, help, and completion. That brings us to the second fundamental conviction that we looked at about marriage. And today, uh, we're going to get more into this. Marriage deserves the highest priority, the highest priority. Marriage deserves the highest priority. Look at verses 23 and 24 of our text. It says there, the man said, now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall Two shall become one flesh. Now, what Moses is saying here, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that marriage initiates a new, more important relationship than any other relationship that you may have. That's very important to understand that. That marriage initiates a new relationship, more important than any other relationship that you may have. Other than the Lord it's himself, obviously. And you see this hinted at in Adam's response to the woman. In verse 23, we don't see it really here in our English language, but in the Hebrew, 
what Adam is doing here is he's really breaking out in poetry, <laughs> kind of romantic. He sees his wife, and he, he, he works up a poem for her. And, and that's what he really says there in verse 23. This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's a form of poetry. It doesn't sound like it, but that's really what it is. Now, what's, what's he saying here? Let's just break it down very basically. What Adam is saying here is, wow, there is someone that's a perfect complement for me. He's stepping back, and he's going, this is awesome. I've gone through all these animals that God had created, and I couldn't find one that was complementary to me. But now, God has given me this compliment. And he really wants to know, when it says there in verse 23, the man said, this at last, or this is now. Um, at last, finally, God, this is what I've been looking for. Now I can be complete. Remember, he had all the animals march before him. All those that were nearest to the garden, at least, and he named them. And he found none that could correspond to him. And now, at least, at last, God brings him Eve. And it's, he says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. See, Eve was of the same substance as Adam. Yet an entirely new and different being. Same substance, different being. And men and women are different. I don't care what people say. They're different. They're different physiologically. They're different emotionally. They're different mentally. They're different in every way. And when people try to make them the same or deny the differences, you're just going against all the evidence and all that Scripture proves to be true. Now, the last two lines of 23 are typical of Hebrew naming. He says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam had found someone who shares in his nature. So he gives her a title. In the English, it's woman. And you can see the, the, the resemblance, man, woman. Well, you see the same thing, ironically, in the Hebrew. The, the Hebrew name, the Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. Very similar. Very similar, just like man and woman. And that reflects the reality that they share in the same substance. They share in the same natures. And now in verse 24, Moses begins his commentary. He begins to apply, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the principles of the first marriage to every marriage. He's not just saying, well, this is what happened with Adam and Eve, and it doesn't mean anything to anybody else. He's saying, no, this, this can apply to your marriage, to, to my marriage. And this passage is absolutely crucial because it gives us these basic biblical foundational principles. And by the way, it's repeated three other times in the Scriptures, this same passage. It's repeated in Matthew 19, in Mark 10, and in Ephesians 5. And when you put that together, you'll notice that the words of Genesis 2.24 occur one time before the fall, three times after the fall. 
one time in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. Well, what does all that mean? It simply means that Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 was God's prescription for marriage, not just in a perfect world as Adam and Eve lived in, but also it remains his prescription for a marriage in a fallen world like we live in. See, people today want to take the scriptures and change it and make it, quote, relevant to the society in which we live. You don't have to make the Bible relevant. It already is. It's God's authoritative, holy, inerrant word inspired by him himself, by God himself. Now, here we see two verbs that describe the first marriage relationship. And this text really teaches us that marriage is to be superior to all other relationships. Like I said previously, we're to leave and we're to cleave. We're to leave and we're to cleave. We're to leave and we're to be joined are the two verbs. Well, let's look at this a little more closely. First of all, we're to leave. Therefore, it says a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, even though Moses gives this command to the man, to the husband, the wife is implied in this as well. And that's true throughout the scriptures. He says that we're to leave our parents. Now, this traditional translation of the word leave suggests that the man would move away from his parents and set up home elsewhere, maybe far away from his parents. But when you think about it, the typical Israelite marriage, in the typical sense of the culture in which this was written, the man continued to live in or near his parents' home. That's just what was happening. It was the the woman who left her home to join her husband. So we need to take a little more look at this word leave. What does it actually mean? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word leave can be used a couple ways. For example, first of all, Israel's commanded not to leave or forsake in the translation. Um, Not to forsake the poor. There's a command given to Israel. Uh, The Levites were, were giving this. Don't forsake the poor. That is those who were serving the temple, scattering throughout the land or the covenant. They weren't to forsake any of those things. God, in turn, using the same word, promises not to forsake Israel. He says, I'll never forsake Israel. I think it's preferable here to translate this word leave as forsake. The man shall forsake his father and his mother. Now, remember, in the Jewish culture, honoring parents was very high on the priority list. Uh, There was an obligation uh, next to honoring God, really. And so, for the Jewish person to read these words and hear that you must forsake your father and your mother, that would have been absolutely shocking. They would have read that and said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? That goes against everything culturally we believe in. Well, what's he really saying here? It still applies today. You and I are to forsake our parents. I say that in a relative sense, uh, not in an absolute sense. Uh, That's important to understand. Uh, This is a common Hebrew form of communication. You remember throughout the scriptures in the Minor Prophets, particularly in Hosea chapter 6, Hosea says this, um, 
I deserve or I desire rather loving kindness and not sacrifice. Remember where it says that? I'd rather have loving kindness and not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's what God says in the book of Hosea. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't want people to sacrifice, that he didn't want them to obey the clear-cut commands to offer sacrifice. That's not what he's saying. It was, what, a comparative. He's saying, look, mercy ought to be more important to you than the ritual of sacrifice. That's what he was saying. Remember, in Luke chapter 16, um, the Lord uses similar words, and he's He's uh, basically dealing with people who want to be his disciple. A bunch of people are following him. And he tells them, look, to be my disciple, you have to what? Unless you hate your father, your mother, you can't be my disciple. Well, what does he mean by that? Is he telling us we should hate our parents? No, because we're told everywhere else that we're to love everyone, including our father and our mother. So it can't mean that we're to hate our parents. Matter of fact, Jesus says we should even love our enemies. So how do we reconcile? Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father, even your own family. Well, it's comparative language. What Moses is saying back in Genesis, his point is simply this. If you are married, you are to be committed to your spouse. That's the comparison. It looks like you're so committed to your spouse that it looks like you have forsaken your closest blood relatives, your mother and father. See, in, in marriage, a man and a woman's priorities change. Those of us who are married, we realize that. We understand that. I remember when I was single. On the holidays, I had nothing to do because I turned down all the invitations for people to invite me over because I was proud to be by myself. I was proud to be single. I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul. I don't need anybody for anything. And people in the church would be gracious. Why don't you come over for Thanksgiving dinner? And I just didn't feel comfortable. So I'd kindly say, no, 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 no. So I ended up with a tradition. I'd drive around and usually I'd go out from Fremont. I was a youth pastor. I'd drive out um, on 580 there out to the I-5. Inevitably on, on Thanksgiving or Christmas Day, I'd find a couple of family that's on the road there somewhere on an exit ramp hitchhiking, and I thought, okay, here's my opportunity. I'd pick them up, and I'd take them to the hotel and get them some dinner and put them in a hotel for a night. And that was just something I enjoyed doing. Well, when I got married, I had a 13-year-old daughter and a wife, and all of a sudden, Thanksgiving comes, and I says, and she's planning for the big Thanksgiving dinner. I said, well, no, 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 we're not doing that. <laughs> we're going to go out the freeway and pick up some stranger and... <laughs> Trust me, my priorities changed real quick. You know, that wasn't going to be part of my life anymore, at least not with my wife and my daughter. And that made good common sense, right? And so we have to understand that the priorities change once you're married. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade 5. 
And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. And directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. GracefulTruth.org is where to go. And while you're at our website, don't forget to download our mobile app, new and improved and ready to use, whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church Redwood City-CA. Or stop by our website, GracefulTruth.org, and follow the prompts. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.